All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I love it. I love talking about it. And it is training trunk stability and why it's important. So, Alex... What Austin said, quote unquote, for this, he can do this with his eyes and ears shut. Exactly. (laughs) I can do it like you've seen the monkeys, like see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil. So it looks like I don't get a word in piecewise. No, this this is going to be a lot of rants on my end. But Alex, talk about trunk stability. Why is it important from your lenses? Uh, For a lot of my lenses, it, it just helps us hold good position, right? Like first off, you have to learn good position and like how to do that with the trunk, which is way overlooked in almost every training program ever. And it's overlooked because a lot of athletes do this subconsciously or they get away without doing it, right? So we're talking about breathing, talk about bracing, talk about that type of stuff. It gets way overlooked, which we definitely need to dig into the the nitty gritty on how to do that stuff. But where I see trunk stability playing the biggest piece is the ability to punctuate our movement with good position right and so what i mean by that is everything that we do whether it's wrestling striking uh clinch work cage grappling jujitsu it's all underpinned by efficiency and whoever can maintain better position consistently right and so loading your trunk and being able to stabilize in that manner and in a good position, which I keep saying good position. What I mean is, you know, your ribs stacked over your hips, diaphragm aligned, um, head higher than the hips, um, just these biomechanically sound and strong positions. If you can find those more consistently and then hold them more consistently than your opponent, you're more than likely going to open better opportunities for yourself in MMA. And then you can, the more opportunities you see, obviously the more you could capitalize, the more success you're going to get. Right. So I look at it very much from a consistently um, stable and strong positional lens, which I know is very up here meta, which is kind of not your view, Austin. Is that correct? No, I I think, I mean, trunk stability is an extremely important concept through and through, um, no matter how you do it. I do, I do go deep down the rabbit holes of different trunk stability strategies on like the micro lenses, which is kind of what you're talking about, I believe. But from a macro level, trunk stability is, is one of, if not the most important part about success, right. In, in any positional like skill, if you, I use the analogy of a pop can all the time. So the top, your rib cage is going to be the top of the pop can. Your pelvis is going to be the bottom of the pop can. And then your transverse abdominis or like that inner weight belt that wraps around in 360 degrees. That's going to be the outside of the pop can. If I have a dent in a pop can, it's extremely easy to crush. It takes about eight pounds of force. If I have an undented pop can, I think it was, um, Oh, why am I forgetting the number? I think it was like 678 pounds of force, I believe, was something. It was along those lines. It was about 600 more pounds of force to crush a pressurized pop can versus a dented pop can, right? That's a lot. If we take that analogy now, we we aren't pop cans. So obviously there's differences. No. No. I know, right? We're, we're not made of aluminum. I uh, identify as a pop can. Oof. Don't get us canceled. <laughs> um. Specifically Orange Crush. <laughs> 
Uh, hey, if you're going to pick one, that's the one. I that, or Mount, like, that or Mountain Dew. I actually like Grape Crush better. Ooh, gross. Uh, anyways, we're not pop cans, so there are some disparities. But for the most part, the same concept applies, where is if we're able to pressurize and if we're able to stabilize, then everything else has something to pull off of which I think is the most important part. Why I think the trunk is the most important part of the stability or of the performance equation is because in order to generate force, in order to generate power, in order to literally do anything in a macro level, your muscles and your slings need a stable surface to pull off of. Um, One of my favorite, 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 favorite analogies, or I guess stories is like, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. Sure. You you cannot expect to generate large amounts of force without having a stable trunk to push off of. Hundred percent. We're gonna run out of analogies in this podcast because I just thought of a another saying that I always use. But um, that stability that you find when you're trying to perform, I think it's ignorant to think that it's not going to happen or that you're constantly on a canoe, right? Like you're gonna find ways to stabilize and to create solid position they're a lot of times just going to be suboptimal. They're going to be not as good and you're not going to have as much power or mobility in those. Exactly. Something's always going to be lacking and, and something could be lacking power mobility, but it could also be a less efficient strategy. So it actually is going to cost you more energy. Yeah. So you get tired. Yeah. That one right there is we call the extension compression stability strategy where we lock our lumbar erectors or our low back Mm -hmm. muscles in place. And that's how I choose to stabilize. Well, guess what? That's extremely taxing on my system because those are big old fucking muscles. Yeah. So that's going to cause, if that's what I'm using to stabilize any sort of um, positional movement, then that's going to drain me of energy. That's going to cause me to be less efficient and I'm not going to be able to perform at as high of a level, not just lacking the power that I could generate as well. Yeah, a ton. And and that idea of, of suboptimally stabilizing is what gets a lot of people hurt too. Like mm-hmm. Because again, it, and it doesn't exclusively have to be ego lifting, but if we get into that stabilization strategy and we do it chronically and constantly, this is what I mean by good athletes getting away with it, quote unquote, like they get really strong in this extension compression stabilization strategy and then they use it and then maybe they can, you know, deadlift, let's say 500 pounds with it. Like, and then you're, if you're a strength coach or an uneducated person, you look at it and you're just like, great, they're super strong. But then you look at it and you're like, oh, they're not efficient at all in that is going to lead to worse cardio, um, more risk of injury, which is the biggest one, right? Like this extension compression st- stabilization strategy, like that's damn near one of the leading causes of low back pain, right? Because yeah, hundred percent non-specific low back pain. That's the number one cause. Sure. Yeah. Cause we're overusing those muscles. And then when we do overload them, we can't feel it. Then we have no stability to fall back on. And there goes the disc, right? If, if my understanding is correct coming out of chiropractor disc would be more flexion based load um typically but it's more like i don't like facet syndrome as a diagnosis but it's more so non-specific means the tissues irritated we don't necessarily know which tissue but there's irritation due to either too much load or positional load whatever that's most likely from extension compression because we're overusing the musculature those tighten up and it causes whether pinching on the nerve or whatever it's causing that spasm which is going to give you the symptoms right that that tightness yeah that's the symptoms you're going to feel so 
combating that and and we talk about like the the phrase that came into my head was proximal stability equals distal mobility Mm -hmm. right so it's like if we stabilize more correctly rather than this extension uh compression set oh my goodness how many times can we say that ec Um, ecss so if we do that with our back we can't be as mobile through our hips through our trunk rotation through um a million different movements that you're going to have to use in the MMA cage, right? Like you have to use those. And if you're limiting yourself by using your erectors to stabilize everything, then you're just by definition, not reaching your potential. Right. Like I say all the time, like, um, using your low back to stabilize your spine is asking a muscle to do a job. It's not designed to do for sure. For sure. I'm, I'm not an accountant. If you ask me to do my own taxes, I'm going to flounder. <laughs> Absolutely flounder. There's a reason my dad's an accountant. Say, he does my taxes. <laughs> exactly. He does our taxes. Um, but if you ask me to do a job that I don't know how to do, I'm going to be confused and I'm going to fuck it up. Right? That's all you're cool. doing. If you ask your low back muscles to stabilize and that's your primary source of stability, well, guess what? Then they're doing somebody else's job. Which yeah. means then somebody else is going to have to fucking do their job. Then right. it goes down to the hips. So the hips don't have any more. The hips are less mobile because they have to stabilize for what the low back should have been doing. And yeah. it just keeps going down and down and down. And that's where we talk all the time about chains. Like that's the connection to where knee pain can cause back pain or foot pain can cause shoulder pain and vice versa. All yeah. of these different things are just a part of a chain. And if you're asking a major part of the chain to do a job it's not designed to do, then it's going to cause symptoms somewhere. It might not be in that spot, but they're going to yeah. be somewhere. 100%. And that's where, and for you guys listening, I promise we're going to get to strategies of doing this correctly. We're not just going to keep droning Maybe. on about incorrect stuff. But to me, that's where we can get into almost like our sling patterning type mm-hmm. of stuff, right? Because one hugely overarching pattern I see in a lot of athletes specifically, but just even humans in general standing and sitting exclusively is low back does a lot of the stabilization work, right? Which opens up the hip flexors and quads to be completely overused because that's almost exclusively how we're driving hip extension because your, your glutes are relatively turned off. So to me, it goes quads and hip flexors into the low back as a strategy and then almost up through the chest into your anterior low re anteriorly rotated shoulders right and so that to me is a more suboptimal or not i wouldn't say suboptimal but an imbalanced stabilization strategy because we're just so biased towards that and a lot of the work that i do in a, in a functional sense with strength and conditioning is i try and use the breath to activate the core lock the shoulders down with the lats to link the upper body. And then we get into the glutes, which are actually our muscles that should do hip extension. Mm-hmm. All right. So a lot of that comes starting with the breath work using the core, then starting with some retraction and depression of the shoulder blades, getting the lats to stabilize and pull and do their job, which they're hundred percent better at than the traps. Everybody uses their traps to pull, right? So we get the lats to do their job. We get the core to actually brace, and then we get the power of the glutes because if we're locked in this extension compressed and stabilization strategy we're not maximizing our glute strength and well, i'd argue we aren't even getting into hip extension we know that it, because sure. the the human eye is trained but it's not a hundred it's not foolproof right it's not a microscope yeah. 
I would bet you that you're not even getting into hip extension. If you're in the extension compression stability strategy, you're more in lumbar extension and you're still stuck in hip neutral, not the other way around, which it should be spinal neutral and hip extension. But because there's very close pieces and it's a a lot of mass, I mean, you got your ass right there, then you can't tell the difference between the lumbar extension because you're still going to get to the same position. It's just the pieces are flip-flopped. Yeah, we can't see through an x-ray to see what's actually the movement. Unless everybody's lifting naked and you can see all that shit, but I don't know one gym that does that. I don't even know if naked's a good solution, right? That'd be cool, but... (laughs) <laughs> you, you got to see through an x-ray right you yeah to, exactly you would have to see the the spinal movement or even the fascial movement but yeah and then do you so i guess depending on, on, on your expertise austin do you think that um i don't i don't think it's hypermobility but the the ext- extensive movement of the lumbar spine to create quote unquote hip extension is that what irritates a lot and causes mm-hmm. problems is because your low back is is not only asked to stabilize, but at the same time, move your hips. Bingo. hundred percent. It's, it is being asked to do too many jobs, which pisses it off. Um, I, that's why I've been doing a lot of like a way that I can break the extension compression stability strategy is like unloaded 45 degree hamstring curls, staying in lumbar flexion. Right. Or like Rich Ohm, we, who we had on the podcast, he does one called, I think he calls it a kettlebell butterfly. That's what I call it. But it's, it's almost like the setup for a kettlebell arm bar or for like, um, like a kettlebell kick through sure. to where you have to push to the sky. The lumbar spine goes into flexion and rotation, which is going to break it, it. It's an antagonist of extension yeah, 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 and it, it, can't it relaxes the low back. Yeah. So before I have people do breath work now, I actually have them do this kettlebell butterfly they'll do 10 reps on each side at with like a 25 pound kettlebell above their head and then from there we can go into breath work because the nice. extension compressivity stability strategy has been broken and then yeah. we can expand posteriorly so you're you're inhibiting that the lumbar rectors and, and and getting them to move rather than getting them to stay stable like so we're not working against the current we're stopping the current and then working forward from that which 100 yeah sense. so yeah. like muscles like that they want to they they want to stick in the feedback loop that they're already in right if they're being used more they just want to keep being used more and more and more and more and more yeah so we have to give it some sort of stimulus to break that to try to make it not even give I guess the word would be like to give it a little bit of amnesia toward like, what the fuck was I just doing? They forget what they're, it's like you ever walk in a room and you don't know what you went there for. You want to give your low back erectors that moment so that they remember, Oh motherfucker, I'm supposed to move shit. I'm not supposed to stabilize shit. And then the other stuff can start doing what it's supposed to be doing. One, I agree with you, but one, two, I know at least 10 strength coaches that will hate you for saying muscle amnesia, but or or forgetting or whatever but uh i think it's kind of funny oh you're talking about the gluteal amnesial people yeah it's completely different than what i'm talking about or some shit like activation and turning your muscles on or off or whatever but um no i i'm with you i just i know that would trigger a couple of break a a spasm cycle there you go beautiful um yeah, totally. And I, I want to speak more to that feedback loop because that goes into what I see a lot of like a lot of ego lifting, right? Because yeah. breaking that loop, relearning movement patterns, you have to take so many regressive steps, right? Like, like again, and it's really hard to lift that from your ego. And like, I, I fall in the trap all the time because I'm a quote unquote strength coach, right? So like, if I'm going to rebuild my squat, I'm going to start with maybe like a, like a 245 pound max, 
you know, right. And as much as that, that is not a, a big squat number. If that's my functional capacity, that's where I need to be spending my time. Because when Rich almost saw in here, we're interested in closing the gap between the functional and the absolute, which the absolute is a lot of times inappropriate stabilization strategies, but that's where it's like cool to fucking squat 400 pounds and cool to like do all that stuff. So it takes a lot of ego swallowing to almost reset, which I think Austin, again, you've done really well at your gym of almost addressing that or nipping that in the bud, right? Like, like nobody's at your gym to lift big numbers. People are at your gym to get better, feel better and perform at MMA. Right. So like hundred percent. And so I think taking that out of your like traditional weight room setting does a lot of that work for you, but it it also comes down to an interpersonal relationship with your coach. And like you understand, like as a coach, genuinely understanding all this stuff and being able to effectively communicate it to your athletes. Well, it, it comes down to, values. We always talk about values as a human, right? It's not us, but a lot of people, we talk about like, what are your values? What are your morals? Sure. As a strength coach or as a healthcare practitioner, as a performance care specialist, like I consider myself, I have morals and I have values. My values are, are known by every athlete I work with. When you come to me, I don't care what numbers you put up. I care how you move, how well it works and how it translates into your sport. That's all I care about. I don't fucking care how much weight is on that bar to be completely honest. Um, and that's something that I make very apparent before I work with any in, in my goals setting session that I have my initial eval, yeah. I make it very apparent with every single athlete because a part of my eval is testing their breath. And when I get to test their breath, I get to test their stability and 9.9 times out of 10, their stability is dog shit. Mm-hmm. So I can have the conversation right away saying, your first month, two months, maybe three months is going to be extremely low intensity unless you're in fight camp. If you're not in fight camp, then we're going to focus on this because this is going to take you from good to great. If you learn how to use this efficiently, if you learn how to stabilize properly, this is one of those things that can make a huge, huge, huge impact on not just performance, but on longevity of your career. So I'm going to force you to do this, whether you want to breathe or not. If you're going to be in my gym, this is what we're going to do. Is that okay with you? And as long as I say it in an engaging way, I have yet to have one person tell me no. Right. And yeah, and, and you create their rapport and, and where they're going to trust you in leading that. But I think right now, and that's a perfect segue, we can get into what is your correct approach to retraining this stability pattern, which almost everybody is fucked up on, right? So it's like, what's the the progressions you go through? You already outlined kind of this kettlebell butterfly into your breath work. But if we're going to start at breath work, What's your first starting position? How do you cue it? How do you coach it? And kind of get into the nitty gritty for me on building breath work, which I know you love to do. So oh, you're your, asking me to do my thing. Here's your I, softball. I just coached three new people on breath today. There you go. So how I set things up, right? I, I have a, a multifactorial approach to training stability, but it's all going to start with supine feet elevated. So unweight bearing, not like a dead bug, but you're actually resting your legs on like a bench, um, breathing, or I'm going to take it a three-step process. The athlete's going to have one hand on their chest. The other hand is going to be on their belly button with their pinky a little bit beneath, almost like pointing towards the pubic bone. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have them take 10 breaths. Well, the first two I'm going to watch. And again, 9.9 times out of 10, 
The rib cage goes to the sky. The stomach doesn't fucking move. And I'm like, all right, listen here. <laughs> the next eight breaths. <coughs> Sorry, cough tech. The next eight breaths. I want you to focus on the top hand doesn't move. The bottom hand does. From then on, it takes probably about two for them to realize what's going on. And then it's going to take maybe another two to three before they get relatively competent. And by about the 10th breath, they're able to push their belly button to the sky. But then I have to tell them, oh, that thing you just learned, that's one step of three steps. So that's cool, but that's the easiest. Let's go trick the brain some more. That hand that's on the chest is going to go to the side. So you're going to make a C and push into the obliques. I'm going to say, all right, so you know how to push forward now. Guess what? The breath's supposed to expand laterally as well. You got to go side to side. If you can only go forward, that dents your pop can further. And that's actually going to piss off everything we're doing. Right. (laughs) So then we focus for the next probably minute to a minute and a half on just learning how to expand laterally. So I'll have my hand on one side, the athlete's bottom hand that was on the belly button then transfers over to the side with one index finger still pushing on the front Mm. and they're expanding forward and into both sides. This one's typically going to take a little bit of time and it's going to take a little bit more manual pressure. So don't feel afraid to push in harder. Once they get that, I tell them, ah, cool. That was the medium one. Here's the shitty one. So every athlete doesn't realize that you should be able to breathe into your back. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know, probably listening, that you should be able to breathe into your back, but you should because that is the last part of the stability equation of your trunk. So I'll have the athlete with the hand that's on the side. It's going to wrap underneath and you're going to push your thumb into that back dimple or that QL area. From there, I'm also going to get on the other QL area. I'm going to say with your breath, not with your muscles. I want you to push your finger and my finger into the table or into the ground, whatever surface they're on. They're always going to want to cheat because they're athletes. And I told them to do a goal, which is spine to ground. So they're going to immediately use their muscle and try and flatten it out. And I'm going to say, all right, so that's the opposite of what I just said. I need you to force your breath there. If your muscle activates, I can feel it. That's why my hand's on. I don't want Mm -hmm. you to cheat. I care about you doing it right. So that immediately sets my expectation for everything else moving forward Yeah, that I care about you doing it right. They're going to remember that. And I know because I've asked my athletes after from there, the next about minute to two minutes, we're forcing that air down. So we're forcing them to focus on pushing the air into the back, consciously breathing, consciously moving. And then the last 10 breaths, I'll integrate everything. So I'll say, take your hand off your chest. You're good there now. One hand on your belly button low, the other hand wrap it around. I'll be on the other side. I need you to fill everything up like you're trying to fill up a, almost like an inflatable tube around your body. Nice. They start getting that. And then that's about a six to eight minute sequence in a hour long discovery session. That's going to stick with them for life because that's performance, that's longevity, and that's actually anti-anxiety. We know that if because that position stacks the diaphragm, so it increases diaphragmatic activation. If I increase diaphragmatic activation, it actually cuts down on your fight or flight, which is going to pull you out of anxiety-ridden attacks. It's also going to decrease rigidity of your um, rectus abdominis or your six-pack muscle. And there's also been studies in the last five years to show that the more rigid your six-pack muscles or your rectus are, the anterior trunk muscles, 
the more anxiety ridden the path or the patient is going to be. So I can show those studies right there. It's immediate buy-in on the anxiety side and on the anxiousness, but then also for performance and longevity, it's a no brainer to throw that in to start any trunk stability setting. No, fucking love it. You, yeah, again, asked your ball out and you absolutely did. So that's fantastic, man. Um, I definitely learned something. That better be the promo, by the way. If that's not the promo, I'm fucking disappointed. (laughs) I asked you to ball out and you did. (laughs) No, but I, exactly. And like, I I listened to myself, like, and I analyzed my own behavior. Like I'm skipping a lot of those steps because again, we're in a weight room type of setting. So like if I spend all this time breathing, that athlete's going to be like, what are we doing, man? So, and and again. Exactly. But that's what I'm saying right there. Is yeah. that if you change the context with which what the athlete thinks is training, which breathing is just training, it's just a little bit lower intensity and regressed, but it is training nonetheless. No, I totally agree. And the part that you said, like, that's going to help them throughout their whole life. Like, I didn't know the abdominal tightness part. So, like, maybe the six pack abs and constantly tight washboard thing that you want is not what you're looking for, right? Um, but what I hear you saying in that is like the better you are at relaxing and letting your breath control your stability the less muscle expenditure that you have to have the better quote-unquote in shape you're gonna be right so so you're spending a lot less energy to get a lot more stabilization in the correct way and then this six to eight minutes breathing session where we're focused on breathing forever the breathing part never goes away right you're gonna breathe constantly your whole life and you're gonna breathe while you're working out especially and probably a lot more so it's like we need to integrate that and find ways to continually progress that into can you do that breath in every single thing that you do? Can you do that breath in a low bear? Can you do that breath in a goblet squat? Can you do that breath in a kettlebell swing? Can you do that breath when we're hitting mitts, right? Is the ultimate progression of this. And we want to get you so good at that breath that you're never thinking about it, but you're automatically doing it, right? So that's the, like, one of the continuums we talk about, but opening well, your eyes to that is a discovery for movement forever and always a hundred percent. And so recently, not recently, I've been doing it forever. Instead of prescribing ISOs at the bottom of movements, like at the bottom of a squat, I'll prescribe breaths for the ISO. So instead of it being seconds, it's breaths and they have to practice that constant consciously in the middle of a higher threshold movement. Sure. Is that how you kind of differentiate bracing and breathing? Cause I know you've talked about those being two different things in progressions. 100%. So, um, how, so that was just step one, that entire process. And I'm not going to bore you guys with the entire thing and dive that deep, but I thought that was step 99. Oh, I thought that was important to talk about the breathing aspect because you could listen to that little five minute clip and that teaches you how to breathe immediately. But so where I go from that is once they learn how to breathe with the feet elevated, I'll take the feet out of the elevated position or I guess the assisted position and then force them to actually lift their legs up. They're using some sort of hip flexion and fighting gravity. So you have to increase the threshold with which you, the movement is going to require energy or require consciousness or require concentration. And then from there still stabilize in a proper way. And it's crazy how few people can go from assisted to unassisted in a matter of, in just in a week, It, it takes a few sessions. That's, uh, that's pretty wild. And again, uh, it speaks to your skill on coaching it too. But like, for me, I feel like, I feel like this with breathing and I feel like this with fucking squatting every session I get mad and I have to relearn how to do it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the cool thing is there's different positions. So like you could throw somebody into chai if, if they're really just not getting the back breathing, but they get the other ones really, really well, then I'll yeah. throw them into what DNS calls first position or what yoga would call similar to like a child's pose. Yeah. I'll have them upright through the T-spine and for, focus on sto- shoulder stability, but I'll put them into a lumbar rounded state because most of the time when you can't breathe into your back, it's because your lumbar erectors are so fucking tight that yeah. they can't expand there. It's a similar thing to what I was just talking with the rectus abdominis and, and yeah. the tension of the abdominal wall just on the posterior or the back. Yeah. So if I put them into a rounded state, that causes the lumbar erectors or those muscles on the back to stretch and to flex. And that allows you to breathe into that area because they no longer can be as tight, which is going to be what's restricting the movement. Yeah. And I think we keep teasing with the abdominal tightness and like kind of your like six pack abs type of thing. Like this breath work and stabilization strategy and you know, also you can go into your studies and EMGs and things like this is a hundred percent way better um, activation and workout for your core musculature than any types of sit-ups, planks, like just raw ab work that you think about, right? Like for sure. we have, we got to breathe into this. We got to use this breath and stabilize for everything that we do. And then every single rep of any single exercise becomes an abdominal workout, right? And that's how we, that's how we truly build a strong core. Right. Yeah. We, I don't, I don't need a six pack. I need a power barrel is what I tell my athletes. Like <laughs> you stole power barrel from me. Don't fuck with me. <clears throat> yeah. I, I like the term. I, I would store, actually, you stole it from Tim. I stole it from Tim Murray. <laughs> yeah. I got, I actually got it from Tim Murray because I heard him say it when I was out there the one time I met him. Um, but I, I, that's what I use because I don't give a fuck if you have a six pack. I don't care. Yeah, like, right. And I'll tell my athletes that want, like I've had multiple athletes say, I just need a six pack. I, I want to look good. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, you're an athlete. That can, you're be, not, that you're can be your athlete. own agenda. Yeah. You yeah. want to be a model? Go ahead and do that. Exactly. But the The argument that you have to use there is like, I mean, you can look at the world, any of the world's strongest men, right? That that competition used to be on TV con- chronically. Like those Magnus guys. Magnus Van Magnuson. Right. They have blown up cores and they're super strong. And sure, they might have a six pack like on the surface, but it's not your typical like V washboard six pack. They're not. Well, and, and we'll get there because having abdominal rigidity and being able to use the muscles is extremely important, just not sure. for what – not for the wrong job. And not chronically, not every single second of every like single Like your six-pack, if you got a six-pack, that's because you do trunk flexion. Guess yeah, what right. trunk flexion isn't? Trunk stability. It is a movement, not a stabilization pattern. Yeah. And that's exactly true. And that's where I've kind of been, I think, uh, in my own head, I've been over demonizing any type of like lumbar flexion or trunk flexion because it it leads to that type of of thought where it's like, I'm going to do a million setups and then my core is going to be really, really strong. It's like, no, you're going to do a million setups and then you're going to have a fucked up low back and chronic tension in your abs. Yeah, no, for sure. And so Moving forward with that, what I'd want to talk about is integrating that breathing pattern into the training setting because there has to be something that that train. Oh, no, it's the question you asked. How do I separate the two? So how do I separate the two? And it it, it plays into what I was about to say is in incorporation. So once you learn how to expand, because the only way to learn how to expand is going to be to breathe, right? That, That trains the expansion. Once you learn how to do that, you should be able to then control the muscle with which it can expand. So it's called a pulse. 
you should be able to, if you're sitting down listening right now, I challenge you, put your hand on your side and try to, without breath, try to pop your stomach outwards into your finger. Can you do it in, in the front, in the side, and in the back? If you can't, you can't properly brace. You might be able to breathe there, but you can't properly brace there right? Because you should be able to activate the transverse abdominis and and the internal musculature at will in that expansion-based pattern. That's the separation. I I need to be able to train that sequence. The only way to get to that sequence though, is to do the breathing portion first, because you have to master the breath to pressurize because you should be able to consciously move the muscle and also pressurize it in the same setting, because that's what actually gives you the most efficient brace. If you can force that out with the muscular activation and then pressurize through nasal breathing and really filling up the canister. Right. So we're not only like shaking up the soda can and putting pressure outward on it. We're doing that for sure. But then we're also clamping around it with vice grips, right? So we're making, yeah, we're, we're, double downing or we're doubling down, double downing. (laughs) We're doubling down on the stability aspect, which double downs on the strength aspect, which makes you really stable under that 400 pound squat. Should you choose to go there? So I think that's where it gets really important to teach this in a lifting setting, which is, I know what Richard Ohm does. And like, again, we keep referencing him because he's kind of the trunk stability guy in this space, but how can we apply this and keep that brace pattern when we're doing things like a back squat, when we're doing a bench press, when we're doing a kettlebell swing, like this is how you do that. You got to do the bracing strategy. You got to do the breath and then you have to practice it under low intensity, low loads. Then you get to maybe a little higher intensity with low load. Then you build up moderate load with a high intensity. And then we can eventually get to that high intensity threshold, but it's just a progression like we do with anything else in training. It, It just is very disguised because it's that really subtle nuance on how you do things, right? Like that gets overlooked so often because we can do things or because we get them done. I think it's really important to pay attention to how you do it. And the breath just happens to be one of those subtle, tricky things where like how you do it is very easily disguisable. A hundred percent. It's... (laughs) Breathwork is the least understood portion of all of strength and conditioning. And it's my favorite thing to talk about with strength and conditioning coaches because they don't get the importance a lot of the times. And and I think it's purely just because they don't know how to integrate it. Like we, like we were just talking about Um, and, and how I like to integrate it is doing those pulses yeah. But then you also have to, it's, it's just like everything else. There's a return to play process. When you get injured, you have to go yeah. back. If you go from 70% to return to play, you're probably going to get hurt again. It's the same thing with training a new skill. Yeah. We have to go in a step, 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 stepwise fashion in order to train that skill in a multifactorial or into, into everything of your sport. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's where like, again, I think strength coaches are relatively lack in this area because one is not sexy like that. That's straight up. I think it's not socially valued. It's not like yep. the cool thing to do when you go to the gym. So I think again, you as a practitioner have to really communicate that and set that expectation and, and make sure your athlete understands why we're spending 10 minutes just breathing. Um, 
Two, exactly like you said, it's it's really hard to integrate into some movements because we want to jump to intensity of the absolute, not intentional uh, intensity of our like functional capacity. So that's where it gets really hard for me. And I'm sure a lot of other strength coaches is like really slowing down, taking that, that slow ramp up, which one of my, the best pieces of advice I got as a young strength coach is like at any point that you can slow cook your athletes, mm-hmm. any point that is feasible, gradually progress and gradually build. That way we can really have a good foundation. It's like a lot of times in strength and conditioning, we want to jump to like teaching our athletes, like, and wrestling a flying squirrel. We want to teach them that before we teach them how to shoot a double. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like, again, strength and conditioning is so affected by the glamor culture of the For social sure. media or whatever. But that doesn't mean that you can't do lower skilled, but higher intensity movements too. Like yeah, you just have to be I, smart the entire practice isn't selection. just going to be breathing. Yeah. While I would love for that to be the case, I would have zero athletes working with me if my entire <laughs> practice was just breathing because right. it's boring as fuck and you don't want to do that for a, for a whole workout. Yeah. I'm going to focus on breathing in the warm up or in the cool down or anywhere that I can throw it in to where I know that athlete is going to be a little bit more focused. Yeah. And then knowing that, you know what you really, it's really hard to fuck up a relatively light slam ball that bounces that you don't even have to get into a full squat. Well, I can throw them into doing some slam balls for some metabolic circuit. If that works into what that athlete needs, that's going to be something that catches their interest. It allows me to give them their vegetables, which is the breathing. And then I say, Hey, the number one goal, we're doing these slam balls. It's going to be great. I want as quick as you can, but if you feel your low back start to arch, guess what? I need you to slow it down just a little bit. I need you to be aware of what's going on. So I'm reinforcing those breathing mechanics into something that they'd much rather do. Knowing that it's not going to be a quick translation or a quick transition to that proper stability strategy. But then the next time I work with them, then instead of breathing from an assisted standpoint, the warm up is breathing and then trying to lift your hip flexor up just a little bit and back down. So it increases muscular activation. That's what integrates in. Oh, the next time is we're at the bottom of a squat and then we're going to force that breath out and you're wearing a core 360 belt or a weight belt that you have to push into. Or your jujitsu belt, which is a great Yeah, or your jujitsu belt. Integration. And yeah, then and- each time you just get more and more and more until now you're throwing the breath work in. It's not boring anymore. You can throw it in. You have mitts right there. You have somebody yeah. like if they're doing a partner session, you have the partner holding mitts. They're going to hold at end range. And then I, I'm going to focus on them expanding into that breath, changing the stability strategy. Yeah. But if I just go one day from breathing face up with your feet assisted to, all right, now let's take this concept and throwing into your mid session. <laughs> then no athlete, I don't know one athlete that can do that. Right. Yeah. It's a super wild transition for sure. But yeah, it's, it's, it's knowing when as a coach, right. To um, effectively communicate and, and lay out your expectations or explain your process versus when to kind of disguise it in and, and, and layer that way. Like I'm not a big fan of like coaches playing their cards really close to their chest, but I'm also not a big fan of what almost every young strength coach does in the world, which is explain the methodology that they're using to their athlete. Right. Yeah. I, I do points, that all the time. Right. You just got to make it interesting. At some points your athletes want to hear it. Right. But yeah, if you're just nerding out just to nerd out and like, that's something that you're passionate about, like that's cool. And some athletes is going to land. But if you do that 
in front of a group of 20, you're going to have 17 to 18 athletes check out immediately. And then you're not accomplishing your goal. So I think it's really important to disguise and layer things in while still making the workout entertaining and, and effective. For sure. Well, and that's where you could kind of go and you could say, if you guys want to learn more about this, hit me up after or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, let's just make this a multi-part series because there's sure. so much more and I don't want this to be a four hour podcast. Right. And I'm wondering too, right. When you said that, I'm thinking about like your weaponing, uh, your breathing series on our Instagram page. I think well, that's that literally what it. it is. But then also like what I want to go into further is like stability and respiration are on a spectrum and they go up and down. It's literally an inverse graph. So if you yeah. need more stability, you can't respirate as rapidly or as deep yeah. or, or as efficiently to Welcome get the air. To grappling. Exactly. So like if you need more respiration, you're going to have less stability. That's why grapplers like have a lot of low back disc herniations because you can't stabilize the trunk as well. Yeah. And you're in a rounded position. So the stability factor goes down, the respiration goes up and you're at a predisposed to more injury. Well, guess what? Grappling populations have a massive disc herniation correlation. So all of these different things, talking about performance, talking about how respiration increases with training the stability because the lungs get more efficient. We can do 10 parts on this, but I think, I think this was a good intro to trunk training stability and how to try incorporating into yours as well as your athletes practices. No, hundred percent. I think we went over a lot of bad strategies, went over a lot of good strategies, and then we finished up with some integration into a strength and conditioning session. So I think that lays out a good roadmap for the athlete and for the continued education for the practitioner out there too. All right. Well, that's what we got on training trunk stability part one. If you guys get again gotten got to get in touch with us. All of our information is in the show notes, both email and Instagrams. Um, If you are in the need for any sort of programming or just want to learn about strength conditioning or want to learn about how how we program, all of our strength conditioning programs and a low back pain course are going to be on our Building a Fighter website. That is buildingafighter.com. So hit those up and check them out. And then finally, this is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Freeman. And we are out.